Welcome to the Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies. I'm Mary Scott Fleming, Director of Enrichment Programs. It's a particular pleasure to welcome so many of you from different parts of Monticello, from different parts of Virginia, but also particularly appropriate to welcome some of you from different parts of the country. We have visitors who've joined us from Pennsylvania, from several parts of North Carolina, and of course, this is a great segue to the title of this afternoon's talk, in conversation, he was quite unrestrained, visitors' accounts of Thomas Jefferson. This talk is actually a tribute to Jefferson, to the visitors, but also to those who work here at Monticello editing the Jefferson Papers, the retirement series. Much of their work at the papers involves the reading of Jefferson's thoughts and his opinions, sometimes deciphering what he means. As Jeff Looney's probably fed up of hearing me say, I think of him and those who work with him as history detectives. They really are. In her talk this afternoon, however, Ellen Hickman is going to turn things around and talk in the reverse. She's going to tell us some of the visitors' thoughts on Jefferson and Monticello. Ellen earned her MA in US history at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And while at graduate school, she became interested in the phenomena of people visiting American political leaders, establishing those presidential homes as tourist destinations, really quite early in our nation's history. Ellen has been an assistant editor here for four years. She'll give us some background on how this particular project took shape, and then she'll actually flesh out what the visitors recorded in their accounts of Jefferson and Monticello. So please welcome this afternoon, Ellen Hickman. Thank you, Mary. It's wonderful to have a chance to talk about this. Um, so many of us work on these projects over long periods of time and you know, enjoy the work we do so much and uh, don't always get the chance to, to share it. So this is a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, as Mary said, um, this project has sprung out of the work that we've done here on the retirement series. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what we do, Along with Princeton University, we are publishing all of Jefferson's incoming and outgoing mail. Um, Princeton does everything up through the presidency, and we focus on the retirement years, 1809 to Jefferson's death in 1826. And as part of this project, you know, we're publishing volumes, and we're going to be having a digital version as well. We're also, under Lisa Francovilla, we have a um, digital database of family letters so that you can read the correspondence of Jefferson's family from the same time period and, and really get a sense of the whole picture, um, what's going on at Monticello. Um, you know, the family often fills in details that Jefferson leaves out. So when I started working here, our editor-in-chief, Jeff Looney, and um, Lisa Francovilla, our managing editor, said, you know, it'd be really great if, if along with Jefferson's letters and the family letters, we can do some more with these wonderful visitor accounts that exist um, and make them more accessible. So that's the two of them I owe great thanks to for really starting this work. Um, and we've built on the work of a lot of other Monticello employees, um, current and past, so I'm very grateful to all the folks in curatorial and in the library department, Anna, and people who, who send me accounts as they come across them. So this really um, is one of those collaborative projects that um, owes something to you know, many departments at Monticello. Um, 
so I'm going to give a little outlay of kind of what we're doing, um, the kinds of things we're finding, and, and how we think these visitor accounts are going to be useful sources for Jefferson and kind of a starting point for research. And hopefully I'll try to leave enough time so we can uh, have plenty of questions at the end if you have any. So by the time Jefferson retired from the presidency in March of 1809 and came back to Monticello, his home was already a destination for travelers. And his presence at Monticello then attracted an ever-increasing stream of visitors during these final 17 years of his life. Many of these visitors left little evidence of their visits beyond names and letters of introduction that show up in Jefferson's papers, but a number of visitors compelled to commit their impressions of Jefferson to writing. This body of descriptions circulated really widely even in Jefferson's own lifetime. Um, and in the 19th century, within a few years of his death, descriptions had been published in newspapers and journals and books um, in English and French, Italian, German, Dutch, and they're really being read all over the world. These descriptions of Jefferson written by friends, detractors, neighbors, and strangers offer valuable perspectives from outside Jefferson's immediate family circle. In my talk, I want to focus on the ways in which visitors' letters and diaries and published travel accounts enhance our understanding of Jefferson, his relationships with his family, and life at Monticello. I'm sure many of you, being Jefferson scholars, will be aware of Merrill Peterson's excellent book, Visitors at Monticello, um, which is standard for so many people. Um, Professor Peterson gathered up 35 of kind of the, the richest accounts and, and published them in his book. They're, you know, it's a really, it's a wonderful source, but it's very selective of the overall number of accounts that we um, know about. The accounts that he published um, on Jefferson and Monticello were written between 1780 and 1984. So 35 accounts covering that whole time period. Um, but this number represents only a fraction of what we know about. And in part of the work that we do um, at the retirement series, gathering letters to and from Jefferson were gathering up originals um, as much as possible of these accounts. So up to this point, um, as we go through our transcriptions, we're also publishing these accounts in our volumes, either when they can as standalone documents or in support of the annotation of the letters that we, we publish. So if we get to a letter where somebody says, oh, I plan on visiting on such and such a date, we might be able to point you to a place where that visitor talks about what they saw and what they said with Jefferson. So as opposed to um, from Professor Peterson's book, he has 12 accounts published from our time period. At this point, we've identified over 100 for that same time period. So you know, we're really excited to uh, be able to share these. For the purposes, our purposes at the retirement series, visitor accounts really add to the body of Jefferson text, and we treat them like Jefferson documents. Because in writing of their visits to Monticello, Guests frequently took great pains to outline the nature of their conversations with Jefferson and record you know, verbatim what was said. And a common theme in these visitor descriptions is the degree to which Jefferson was quite unrestrained in his conversation. And one 1817 visitor went so far as to praise Jefferson for his, quote, magnanimous carelessness in the promulgation of his opinion. So we like to be able to, to share these recorded conversations as if they were letters. Although one step removed from Jefferson himself, the careful transcriptions of his speech offer many valuable insights into the evolution of Jefferson's interests and opinions throughout his retirement. Jefferson's recorded conversations amplify themes that appear in his written correspondence. 
as in his letters, he freely shared his thoughts on scholarship and conversation, for example. So throughout the course of Jefferson's retirement, he's increasingly interested in the study of Greek and Anglo-Saxon. And visitors echo the letters that we see in Jefferson's correspondence in talking about the favorite authors he favored, what he's studying and reading. His guests, however, you know, talk about how Jefferson is pronouncing things and you know, that he's reading Greek out loud and, and give really a sample for you know, not just Jefferson the scholar on paper, but, but Jefferson the scholar in discussion. Um, history was another topic that was on Jefferson's mind a great deal in retirement, as you can imagine. And he frequently lamented in his written letters you know, the lack of a satisfactory written history of the revolution. But he told one guest you know, that he felt that all of the works on the revolution available at the time misrepresented facts and motives. Jefferson thought that, quote, the private correspondence of three or four persons in different official stations at that time would form the best history, which is reassuring for uh, documentary editors like us and think that the work we do is valuable and even Jefferson recognized it. Jefferson's spoken words also illuminate the story of William Wirt's biography of Patrick Henry. In April of 1812, and you can read all about this in volume four of the Jefferson Papers Retirement Series, um, in April of 1812, Jefferson wrote out a very detailed description of Patrick Henry for Wirt to use in his biography. And he provided you know, more written materials afterwards as Wirt continued to write. After Wirt published this biography in 1817 though, Jefferson frequently criticized it to visitors. So every time they would come, what do you think of Wirt's biography? Well, let me tell you. Um, among other things, he felt that Wirt had really given short shrift to Henry's gift as an order. But he also thought that Wirt really failed to convey the way in which Henry's opinion in legal matters was, quote, absolutely not worth one single brass farthing. Jefferson's course, uh, conversations, as recorded, really intertwine with the written words that we have from him. And in order to really get the kind of the full picture of Jefferson's thoughts, um, we feel like Jefferson's spoken words, as much as possible, should be studied alongside his written ones. In addition to expanding on a lot of the common themes from Jefferson's letters that we see, visitor accounts fill in gaps of intellectual exchange that occur in his correspondence. Jefferson and Thomas Hart Benton exchanged a grand total of two letters amounting to about 200 very polite and personal words. In between these two letters was a four-hour conversation at Monticello on Christmas Day, 1824, in which Jefferson held Benton bewitched. The following January, Benton described this visit while addressing his fellow United States senators on a bill that proposed constructing a road from Missouri to what's now New Mexico. Benton told the senators how in the course of a conversation on road building and internal improvements, Jefferson had directed Benton to the maps he had sold to form part of the Library of Congress. Benton told this story to the Senate while brandishing the documents in his hand to which Jefferson had alerted him, describing this as triumphant precedent for the bill at hand. So, you know, while Benton may have overstated the, um, the hand of Jefferson's involvement in this um, and overstated the importance of his meeting to make his case in the Senate, his account really does suggest that they had a far more significant exchange than you would get from reading just the letters alone. And nothing in Benton's correspondence with Jefferson suggests that the two had even met, um, much less that they had had any kind of in-depth political discussion. And Benton is one of many visitors for whom this is true. 
Um, the same winter that Benton visited, another young senator, Daniel Webster, also called to pay his respects in Jefferson, to Jefferson. And the pair had exchanged only one brief letter during the entire retirement era. Webster spent several days at Monticello, however, and wrote at least three lengthy letters and a lengthy memorandum describing his interactions with Jefferson and all the subjects of their conversation. Webster's memorandum is particularly rich, and you can read it in Peterson if you want quick and easy access to it. Um, and it's frequently cited for its description of Jefferson's appearance, his habits, his opinions. And of course, you know, not all visitor accounts fill in the gaps quite so satisfyingly. They can't all be as, as rich as Webster. After Mary the Weather Lewis um, committed suicide in 1809, Jefferson and William Clark didn't correspond on the subject at all. Clark, who had been one of Lewis's executors, visited Monticello in the process of settling his friend's estate. He recorded in his diary that he stayed all night at Monticello on Jefferson's invitation and that the two men, quote, spoke much on the affairs of Governor Lewis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, a lot that's kind of missing in those et ceteras. Um, Clark no, gives no details as to what precisely they said, so you have to kind of fill that in on your own. Um, and another great example of the ways in which these can sometimes be disappointing is that of um, poet and educator Lydia Huntley Sigourney, who wrote a brief line in one of her memoirs about how meeting Jefferson was the most important event of her life. Um, so, you know, I started to poke around and see, well, what, can we, what more can we find out about this? Did she leave papers? And yes, the Connecticut Historical Society had her papers and they had her, her diaries. And so I wrote off to the archivist and said, you know, do you know for this time period, does she have any entries about Monticello? I'm you know, dying to know what this great moment was like. And so they very kindly copied the original manuscripts for me and sent them to me. And I you know, rip open the envelope and thumb through to the part where she's at Monticello. And her description of the evening at Monticello was this went by invitation to Monticello to dine with Jefferson. The end. So she spent three days leading up to this complaining about the quality of the roads in Virginia and how it was a sign of how degenerate Virginians were. And then the greatest moment of her life, all she has to say is went to dinner at Monticello. <laughs> Visitor accounts can also be a valuable source on Jefferson's personality written from outside the family circle. Um, these descriptions offer a strong sense of Jefferson as a very social man who enjoyed visiting with people who were intelligent or interesting, even if they were strangers. A conversation of a few hours frequently necessitated overnight stay at Monticello when it became too late in the evening for guests to return to Charlottesville. Even those visitors who found Jefferson somewhat reserved noted that he was, when he was, quote, warmed by a congenial topic, his reserve left him and he would comment with, quote, singular frankness and freedom on men as well as things. Even when Jefferson was answering redundant questions about his home and its furnishings, guests described his politeness, little realizing how many times he had answered similar questions for others. And I'm sure those of you who are guides at the house now can appreciate that it's very difficult to make it seem like an exciting question when you've talked about the boots, you know, every tour you've given, right? Um, perhaps it's self-flattery on the part of visitors, but they frequently describe how reluctant Jefferson was to see them leave and you know, how often he entreated them to extend their visit. You know, stay for another day, stay for a few more hours, I have more things that I need to tell you. 
Still, you know, for all of his enjoyment of a long discussion, visitors often found that Jefferson was a man of routine and schedule, um, who thought nothing of leaving his guests to entertain themselves in the public rooms of the house while he saw to his various responsibilities or took his daily exercise. Visitor counts um, are a wonderful source on Jefferson's appearance and dress, um, as Gay Wilson can probably tell you. Um, and visitors frequently talk about, you know, how Jefferson measured up to their expectations of appearance as well, which is, you know, really interesting to think that people who had never seen him or seen a photographic likeness of him had a really strong sense of what, what Jefferson should look like. Writing in 1824, Daniel Webster said, Mr. Jefferson is a man of whom one may form a very just account as to person and manners from description and pictures. We met him in the road, and I knew him at once, although he was on horseback, and somewhat straighter and freer from the debility of age than I had expected. Although for all that Webster found Jefferson very recognizable, another visitor found that, quote, the pictures of Mr. Jefferson as president do not give a correct idea of his countenance. The profile by Stuart and the likeness by Colonel Trumbull in the picture of the signing of the Declaration of Independence are the most correct. It would be impossible to paint the genius and fire which appeared in the expression of his eyes. Um, Francis Wright, visiting in 1824, agreed that Stuart had best captured Jefferson and declared that all other portraits of him were decided caricatures. First-time visitors to Monticello also measured their experience of Jefferson against his public reputation. One young law student who came to meet Jefferson was pleasantly surprised by the ex-president's friendly manner and reported that, quote, his conversation wins our admiration, his urbanity our esteem. I could not but forget the harsh tales that have been told of him in the free and easy intercourse which he at once established. However, when Elijah Fletcher visited Monticello in 1811, he found that his preconceptions of Jefferson were confirmed both by meeting the man and by what everyone in the neighborhood was, was telling him about Jefferson. Um, Fletcher wrote to his brother that Jefferson was, quote, but little esteemed by his neighbors. Republicans as well as Federalists in his own county dislike him and tell many anecdotes much to his disgrace. I confess, I never had a very exalted opinion of his moral conduct, but from the information I gained of his neighbors, who must best know him, I have a much poorer one. The story of Black Sal is no farce. That he cohabits with her and has a number of children by her is a sacred truth. Um, and visitors record that you know Jefferson himself was very conscious of what his public reputation was. Um, one visitor recalls that visiting Monticello, there was a scrapbook in Jefferson's library filled with all the unfavorable newspaper articles that, that Jefferson had gathered about himself. And, that as this visitor remembered, remembered it, the album was labeled libels. You know, for, for handy reference, who doesn't want that in their library? Um, in addition to describing Jefferson himself, visitor accounts um, contain illuminating descriptions of Jefferson family members and of the wider Monticello household. When Jefferson was otherwise occupied, his family really helped out in taking care of the visitors. So a lot of these accounts describe one-on-one -on -one interactions with various members of the household. Jefferson's daughter Martha and her older grandchildren in particular took on this responsibility, showing the visitors around, showing them the artwork, and staying up to talk, with Jeff to, talk to the visitors after Jefferson had retired for the evening. 
and generally entertaining visitors while Jefferson tended to his business. Martha was apparently very talented in this role. One young cousin who visited described her as the standard for all that is elegant and fascinating. The rest of the family um, exhibited varying degrees of ability as hosts. In 1824, a visitor described the family like this. Governor Randolph, Mr. Jefferson's son-in-law, is very taciturn, though speaking well and agreeably when he speaks at all. His wife is well-educated and converses with great intelligence and ease, but the eldest daughter, Ellen Wales Randolph, is the best talker that I've ever heard among women, or at least one of the best. Ellen Randolph was the oldest of the unmarried granddaughters living at Monticello for most of Jefferson's retirement period. And from the frequency with which she shows up in these accounts, you really get the sense that she made quite the impression on visitors. Um, one smitten visitor in 1813 wrote to his friend, what a strong impression uh, Miss Randolph had made on him. And um, she's made upon my heart. It is impossible to describe between you and me. I have some reason to believe she is not altogether indifferent to me. Um, but this visitor was, you know, a little bit overly optimistic. Um, Ellen didn't actually marry and leave Monticello for over a decade after this, and not to that man. Um, the younger members of the Jefferson Randolph household often won approval from guests for their accomplishments and their intelligence. One visitor who followed Jefferson and two of the granddaughters down to Poplar Forest um, talked about the trio spending a really pleasant and restful day and was led to comment that if the inhabitants of Poplar Forest hadn't spoke English, he should have imagined himself in a French house. Um, like the letters that you can read on the Jefferson, uh, the Family Letters website, which Lisa has put together, um, the visitor accounts depict that the house was very full and busy with a continually changing group of inhabitants. These descriptions chart the comings and goings of Martha's family as well as distant relatives who came to socialize, to make use of the library, or to take up residence when they could not support themselves in their old age. Um, even at times when very few strangers were arriving at Monticello, there were frequently um, many residents living here beyond the immediate family circle. Visitor accounts really offer a counterpoint to Jefferson's public letters and show that he was really very warm and caring towards Martha and her family. The, the family doesn't really show up a lot in the letters that he writes, um, except to the very closest of friends, and even then only in passing. So we really, this is the place where we see him interacting um, with the family. Early in his retirement, Margaret Baird Smith describes Jefferson happily supervising the games of his young grandchildren and lavishing them with attention. When Smith commented on the amusement provided by young children, Jefferson responded, it is only with them that a grave man can play the fool. Jefferson also relied a great deal on his family, um, and especially as his grandchildren grew older, you see them more and more providing him with companionship and support, um, and visitors talk about how the, the granddaughters would help him by copying out um, letters for him and kind of acting as his personal assistants. And while the Jefferson family seemed to enjoy hosting these many guests, especially because they, they entertained Jefferson and, and um, gave him such joy, um, they also found that the demands of entertaining pretty frequently fell on them and could be rather onerous. Margaret Baird Smith again describes how Martha in the fall of 1809 was worn out by trying to balance the care of the family and the education of her children with her role as Monticello's hostess. And, Poor Martha, one of the stories that I like best, in, in 1815, 
Jefferson was detained at Poplar Forest, and he kept saying, no, I'm, I'm coming back to Monticello. I'm, I'm ending my vacation. I need to come back. And he just couldn't quite get away. And meanwhile, um, his friends Correa de Serra and Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours had shown up at Monticello and were waiting for him to come back. So Martha's doing her best to entertain them and all the while running the household. Um, and it was particularly difficult for her because at that time she was the only member of the household who spoke French fluently and Dupont only spoke French. So she, you know, he, every, whenever he uh, was at leisure, he really wanted to talk to Martha because he had nothing else to do. And finally, by the time Jefferson is able to drag himself away from Poplar Forest, the guests have already had to leave. So, you know, Martha spent weeks entertaining them and they never actually were able to stay and see Jefferson. Um, the last few years of Jefferson's life, we really see visits becoming a little bit more burdensome for him. The numbers of visitors really increases in this period, 1824, 25, 26. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the University of Virginia, um, bringing in prospective students, new professors, and a lot of just people that want to come see the university and pay their respects to Jefferson. Same time period, of course, Lafayette visits twice in 1824 and 25, bringing quite the entourage and interest with him. Um, and at this time period, we start to see a lot of up-and-coming young statesmen kind of realizing, oh, you know, Jefferson's not really going to last a lot longer. If I'm going to you know, go see him and get his kind of political imprint on my career, now's the time. So more and more the family really took on the role at this time, protecting Jefferson from the burden of visitors. Uh, in August of 1825, Jefferson really seemed to suffer from a bout of ill health that coincided with a particularly high number of visitors, so it, it really was wearing on him in his age. About this time, Martha was finally able to convince him that she should be the one to receive all the visitors and anyone who politely couldn't be turned away could be brought in to see him in his chamber where he could receive them while lying down on his sofa. Um, but you know, while trying to protect Jefferson from exhausting himself with visitors, the family and their close friends apparently you know, offended some would-be visitors who thought it was their right and duty as citizens to have access to Jefferson. One group who visited Monticello at this time was embarrassed enough that they felt compelled to send Jefferson an anonymous letter explaining why they thought they should come visit. And if you'll excuse me, this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's a pretty good one, so I'll read it in full. So the anonymous letter to Jefferson says, while passing through the state, and more particularly since being in this town, we had understood that it was the allowed practice for all strangers to visit the seat of Mr. Jefferson, and that without the formality of letters of introduction. Mr. Jefferson's character and fame were so identified with that of our country that we considered it a kind of pilgrimage as dutiful as that paid by so many Americans to Mount Vernon. To the embarrassment which every person having the least claim to sensibility must feel on their unushered entrance into the presence of one long looked up to and in the view of a number of ladies, conceive what mortification was subsequently added, some of us known to two of the persons in the portico, who instead of giving us a polite introduction, or informing us that it was disagreeable, say, my baggage is out, I'm going, I'm only a visitor. So, you know, Jefferson, of course, couldn't respond to this being an anonymous letter, but you really got the sense that, you know, because they were known to some of the people who had turned them away, they were very embarrassed that it might get back to Jefferson that they had tried to make this entrance into the house. Even as the family sought to protect Jefferson from the stress, his decline and his age becomes obvious to those strangers who visit him. 
Guests at Monticello in the 1820s reported that, that Jefferson was attempting to stay active, but frequently had to resort to riding because he could only walk short distances before becoming tired. And for us at the retirement series, it's really interesting to see what other people have to say about Jefferson as he ages, because so frequently he talks about how he feels the hand of age is upon him. Um, he complains for many years about his health, and particularly, you know, when people are writing to him to say, well, don't you want to subscribe to my new magazine or my new series of books? Jefferson will write back and say, well, you know, I'm so close to death, I could never read it all before I die. So that's the only reason I don't want your fine publication. So, you know, it's, it's hard for us to get a sense, how much is, is he really serious? So it, it's nice to get a little outside perspective on that issue. One pair of visitors who waited to be introduced to Jefferson in the fall of 1825 described the following scene. Mr. Jefferson had been very ill with a recent attack of his malady, and therefore excused himself from receiving company. There was a large glass door which opened upon the hall and separated Mr. Jefferson's apartments from it. <coughs> While we sat in this hall, a tall, attenuated figure, slightly stooping forward and exhibiting a countenance filled with an expression of pain, slowly walked across the space visible through the glass door. It was Mr. Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson's appearance seems to have fluctuated a great deal in his later years. Um, you can really see that he's having bouts of illness um, and that there are these kind of increasing demands on his time and energy when he's least able to handle it. Several months before Lafayette's 1824 visit, a visitor optimistically remarked that Jefferson's healthy countenance and firm tread suggested that he would live several more years. Frances Wright came along with Lafayette that, you know, just a few months later in November, and she found that Jefferson had really been weakened by a series of violent illnesses and thought it very obvious that death was not far off. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the weakness that the visitors are reporting and kind of the signs of physical debility are a really interesting counterpoint to the letters that we work on where Jefferson is still very actively at this time promoting in the University of Virginia. You know, he's working very, very hard, so it's, it's interesting to see, you know, he's obviously um, failing, but you don't always see that in his letters. Um, the steady flow of visitors to Monticello strained not just Jefferson's health, but his finances as well, and which many of you know, his finances were always a little tenuous in this period. The notes on household consumption he kept early in his retirement, this is a very Jefferson thing, you know, how many vegetables do I think I will eat? How long will it take us to use them? How many should we buy? I'm gonna keep a chart. Um, so when he first retires from the presidency, you know, he's at home, August of 1809, and he makes up one of these charts for what he predicts they're gonna consume. Um, and he notes that in a single week, the house used 25 pounds of brown sugar. And he very specifically said, you know, due to the high number of visitors at this time. And again, he was thwarted that same winter of 1809 when he's trying to calculate how many vegetables do we need to supply for the winter. And the family ended up needing twice as many as he estimated. This continues to be a common occurrence throughout the retirement years. And many of you might know that, you know, the story of kind of Lafayette's visit and what it did to the wine cellars. Um, Lafayette comes for 10 days in November of 1824. He brings this large guest. All the neighbors want to come see him. Jefferson brings all the prominent folks of the neighborhood in um, who want to pay their respects. And it took the wine cellar down to the very last bottle. So Jefferson had to hurry up and order his, his next year's supply of wine, and while he's waiting for that to come to France, he's got to send off to Richmond to have an emergency supply to hold him over until the, the good stuff can come. 
But as I said earlier, this time period, the last few years of his life, the mid-1820s, he's really seeing more and not less visitors at a time when he's less able to, to um, deal with it. And a lot of this, as I said, has to do with the University of Virginia. So the family's not only hosting more people, but in larger groups as more and more people are kind of doing the tourist thing and saying, hey, now, now there's both Monticello and the university. It's just like today, it's a tourist destination because we've got two things to see at once. So the mountaintop really um, was flooded, both with public men involved in the founding of the university, the Board of Visitors is coming here for their meetings, there's workmen and builders seeking construction jobs that show up with a letter of introduction, um, prospective students and faculty, curious tourists. And when once the institution opens, Jefferson's hosting the faculty and their wives, many of whom have moved here from a considerable distance, so he really feels like he's got to entertain. Um, and he's also having groups of students. And these students are the age where they're the sons and grandsons of people he knew during the revolution. So of course, you know, they've all got letters of introduction to see Mr. Jefferson. And one of them comes up at the beginning of the university and Jefferson's even helping him plan his course load. And the university attracted visitors that are interested not just in Jefferson's educational plans, but the design of the university as well. So in 1825, you've got um, an architect who's affiliated with the Utopian community at New Harmony, Indiana, coming with a friend to meet Jefferson and get the personal tour of the university. And you know they were so interested in the plans that they bought a copy to take back with them and thought, you know, how can we uh, possibly uh, use some of these designs in our own work? And Jefferson himself um, frequently gives tours of the university when visitors come. And it's only as he gets kind of more and more infirm that he's willing to delegate it to people like Arthur Brockenbrough and, and other locals who you know, take his place. But you know, while it seems like uh, the university and all the visitors that come with it place a strain on Jefferson on his physical and financial resources, you know, visitors all uniform universally said that now Jefferson was just obsessed with the university and it's the subject upon which all of his thoughts seem to center. He, he can't say enough and he's really eager to, to um, exchange ideas with other visiting educators. When Daniel Webster visited in 1824, he found that Jefferson's thoughts and conversations, you know, he, he spoke only of the far distant past, things that happened a long time ago, reminiscence of the revolution and the University of Virginia. You know, nothing in between, no other current politics, it's UVA or nothing. Jefferson would outline his educational theories, his plans for management of the university in great detail to his guests. And he was equally concerned with the selection and recruitment of faculty. So he would freely discuss his opinions of prominent scholars and you know, would frequently lament to visitors, oh, we can't lure that guy away from his position. It's terrible. He's the best. He's who we want, but we can't get him out of his contract. And on occasion, the scholars themselves would come to, to ascertain the progress of the university. And you know, academic jobs, always hard to come by. So they're coming to check it out and see, oh, you know, I wonder, is this going to actually open up at a time when I could maybe get a position here? So Th Thomas Cooper, eminent scholar, comes in 1820, spends a week at Monticello, and he sits and he really listens to Jefferson and Thomas Mann Randolph talking about the difficulties they're having with the state legislature and in getting funds for the university. And he kind of soaks this all up and then decides, yeah, I think I'll stay at my current position a little bit longer, too early to jump ship, and I'm just going to kind of monitor the situation there. Jefferson also was very actively um, supervising the construction of the university at this time. And one visitor in 1821 claimed that he actually he met Jefferson, that he, 
He was going to go up to Monticello, but he stopped at the university first to see what was going on there. And he met Jefferson while Jefferson was in the, progress, in the process of taking a chisel away from a workman to show him how he should really be chiseling that column capital. And Jefferson's dedication in this regard it kind, of, kind of passed into local legend in Charlottesville. And I don't know if this story is, is true or not, but you know, a couple of, no, I think 10 years after Jefferson's death, a, a European visitor comes to Charlottesville and, and the locals are still telling Jefferson stories. And they claim that while the university was being built, Jefferson would stand on the mountaintop with his telescope and watch the workmen, you know, kind of the idea that if, if they were doing anything he didn't like, he'd get on his horse and you know, trot down to town and you know, take the chisel again. Um, while, sir, while studying the visitor counts really provides insight into Jefferson's occupations, his opinion, personality, studying the actual body of visitors who's coming to see him at Monticello gives a fuller sense of his social and intellectual world in retirement. Many of the visitors that we get showing up at Monticello were actually complete strangers to Jefferson who never earned a place in his correspondence. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they claimed several hours of his time and his thought and conversation. Although, you know, absolutely he, he got plenty of tourists who just wanted to come and stare at him and be able to say, I've seen Thomas Jefferson. He also uh, gets a steady stream of really intelligent and talented people um, that his friends would send along that they thought, oh, Jefferson's going to want to meet you. I'm going to send you along. And one of my favorite instances of this, you know, in the time that we're working on the retirement Jefferson and John Adams have just reestablished their friendship. Um, there's this flood of letters, and for every letter that Jefferson writes Adams, Adams is sending him three. And you know, Adams you know, has this kind of passive-aggressive inferiority complex. Well, I know that your letters are worth so much more than mine, but I'm going to keep sending them in the hopes that you know, one of these feeble tokens will impress you. So at the same time, Adams is sending a flood of visitors to Jefferson, I think five or six people in the retirement. And at one point, he writes to Jefferson and says, well, you know, I know I'm not nearly the attraction that you are, but if you had anyone that you wanted to send me, I'd be so grateful to receive them. You know, just, it's great. And, oh, and the other thing is that I think five of the six people that Adam sends to Jefferson are all ministers, which I thought was kind of interesting, you know, just a little quiet context there. So in this time, Jefferson's visiting with a really wide array of people, planters, politicians, dignitaries, um, educators, clergymen. And you see kind of Monticello becoming this nexus for um, especially foreign travelers who are heading into the interior of the country, um, people doing kind of a grand tour of the states, for legislators on their way taking up a seat in Richmond or Washington. They'll frequently, you know, if they're coming from out west, they'll stop in Charlottesville on the way. And you get a lot of kind of professors and tutors moving up and down the East Coast on their way to new assignments. Who, you know, if you're a, a well-educated, wealthy young man and you're going to be passing through there, you, you talk to every contact you can until you get your letter of introduction to Jefferson. So at a time in Jefferson's life when he was finding that his correspondence and keeping up with all these letters was increasingly burdensome, and he's very seldom traveling, um, you know, after his retirement, he never leaves the state of Virginia. And in this period when he travels, he's mostly going down to his country estate at Poplar Forest. So these visitors are really a very significant source of kind of social and intellectual stimulation for him. Even when these visitors fail to become steady correspondents after they leave Monticello, they occasionally continue to contribute to Jefferson's intellectual word, world by sending along some offering to him based on what they had talked about. So they'll, they'll send along the pamphlet or the book that they had mentioned. They'll send along a rose for his garden or a plant. Um, and occasionally, you know, if, 
if they write up their travel diary and publish it, they send Jefferson the book that has the, you know, and then I saw Thomas Jefferson and we talked about this. So, you know, he's getting visitor accounts even as an O'Day. So as part of our work on visitor accounts at Monticello, we're not just tracking down the accounts. We're trying to create a database of who all was here and when so that, you know, we can know at any given point in time who visited. Um, and especially this is really handy because it gives us kind of our hit list of, well, whose papers might we need to search in case there are more accounts out there or whose memoirs should we be reading. For the present, though, our main focus is locating texts of retirement era accounts. We're really focusing on that period. You know, eventually we'll do pre-retirement presidency. I'd like to take it after Jefferson's lifetime because Monticello doesn't end in 1826, but we're, for our purposes, we're looking at the retirement period so that we can include these in our volumes. Um, over time, I'm sure you've seen many of these documents have been individually published or excerpted for scholar, by scholars um, as source material for monographs. But what we really want to do is kind of give you a, a one-stop shop for, for all your visitor needs and to provide really definitive scholarly editions of the visitor accounts edited to a uniform standard so that as much as possible, we're giving you the literal transcription of what these people said about Jefferson. So one important step in doing this is tracking down where there are multiple texts of the same document, for example, and identifying which of these should be considered the authoritative manuscript originals. And we've already found, you know, just recently uh, benefit in doing this because we had one 19th century diary description of Jefferson that got accessioned by two different repositories in two different forms. So I'd gotten a copy of the first one and I had transcribed it. And, you know, the way we do our work at the retirement series, um, if we have more than one text, we collate them to make sure they're the same or so we can note where there are differences. So for this particular one, I, you know, I, I found, oh, there's a second copy of it. Let's get that just to make sure it's, it's the same thing. And I, and I start going through my transcription word for word against the original. I thought, I've left out a sentence. I can't believe it. You know, what a sloppy transcription. And I go back to the other original and realize, no, it was left out of the copy. And I f in fact, you know, what, I, what looks like happened is um, a later descendant of this visitor excised the parts that were very critical of Jefferson and donated, you know, the one copy to the one repository and later, you know, another repository got a hold of the original that, you know, talked about what a godless heathen Jefferson was, how shabby his clothes were. So it, it's kind of, a, you know, it's really important that we're not just relying on the same published versions over and over again, um, but that we're, you know, being skeptical of things. Um, and again, you know, the accounts also need to be considered as a whole body to understand how they relate to each other um, and so that we can uh, compare and contrast them. And especially this is true because, as I said earlier, accounts were widely published even in Jefferson's lifetime. So visitors that were coming to see him had already read other people's accounts and sometimes kind of incorporate that material into their own accounts without really saying that they're doing that. Um, and this happens pretty, pretty frequently. Um, you'll, you'll be reading along and think, gosh, this person's already talked about coming into the house and seeing these paintings, and now we're starting over again and describing the approach to the house. What's going on here? And lo and behold, you go back, and it was an earlier account that was published in a newspaper that they've lifted and inserted without really saying where it came from. Um, and by studying the accounts and who visited in a whole body and building up a database of knowledge, we've also been able to identify which accounts are actually fictional 
and created for literary or political purposes. And a lot of times you can go back and find the source material. So there's a, a British woman who later in the 19th century writes a fictional description of Monticello and Jefferson for, for children, kind of as an educational tool. And you can look and see exactly where she's kind of plagiarized sentences from one of the earlier published accounts of an actual visitor. Several of these accounts, as I said, have been uh, made available in the first now six volumes of the retirement series. So if you want to see what we've got, you know, check out the volumes. They're here at the library. Um, and we're going to continue to publish them in future volumes. So ultimately, we really hope that we're going to be able to present the whole body as a group so that you can uh, see them all in one place, so that they can be studied alongside the correspondence of Jefferson correspondence of his family, so you can get multiple perspectives on what's going on in this time period and kind of link up the letters Jefferson wrote and received, what his family's saying about the visitors, and what visitors say about Jefferson and Monticello and, um, at the same time. So in doing this, you know, we hope that we're going to um, help Monticello, help scholars, help people that are just generally interested in uh, Jefferson to really enrich our understanding of a man who was very complex and contradictory and, um, you know, give us a better sense of what was going on at Monticello. Thank you. Jefferson's letters, his own letters to that of the family and the visitors, you really get the sense of what a circumspect person he was. Um, he doesn't generally write a really gossipy letter. He doesn't talk about, well, today Daniel Webster came and he was fabulous and here's what we talked about. Because we frequently see in the time period that we work on, um, Jefferson's letters came back to haunt him. He would think he was sending a candid letter to a friend that friend would think, gosh, the public needs to know this, and it would get published, and then he'd get a stream of letters back saying, how dare you? Um, so I, I, I think he really um, was very careful about what he put in the paper, and I think very careful about what he said to visitors, that visitors all say, wow, Jefferson was so candid, he talked so much, and then you start to notice that the same topics get discussed among visitors. Um, so I think that even in his speaking, he was that way. Um, but on the other hand, Part of how I've been able to build up a database of visits is through Jefferson's fabulous record keeping. So one of the first things I did, um, you know, I inherited some wonderful research materials that previous scholars had, had done work on here and, and discovering accounts. And then I went through Jefferson's summary journal of letters, where he records all of his incoming and outgoing mail. So in the incoming mail, you might see a group of, of letters received on one date from all different people bracketed by Mr. Smith. That's Mr. Smith delivering his letters, letters of introduction. So I went through the summary, summary journal of letters, finding every place that a visitor shows up, kind of 
he's not really commenting on what went on with Mr. Smith, but you know he's giving us little clues as to where these people are popping up. So they're in there, but he's not, um, Jefferson's not necessarily very free with his opinions, although the granddaughters can be. So if you, as you read the visitor accounts, it's fun to go see what the uh, granddaughters thought of particular visitors because they're often very um, willing to share those opinions. So you should check out the Family Letters website, which Lisa Francovilla, our managing editor, maintains because there are some really rich resources there as well. David? <laughs> it's a little, little stiff. <laughs> A little bit you are. Um, I learned my lesson early on as I would read, especially the published um, visitor accounts, particularly I think a lot of the European visitors really commented on a lot. I would go through and I would look and I'd say, okay, here's the two pages where they're talking about Monticello. Done. I've copied it all. And then I would realize maybe I should flip forward to three pages, you know, and a few pages later they would be condemning slavery in Jefferson, you know, not necessarily right next to it. So there is some of that. Um, you don't necessarily get the sense that a lot of them spoke with Jefferson about it. Um, there's not very detailed recollections of that. Um, I did, I, you know, in preparation for the talk, I you know, went through and kind of looked at a lot of these accounts because we're working right now very heavily on volume seven. It's been a while since I've gotten to spend time with this. And I was looking through an account that I haven't um, looked at in a while. And all we have, we haven't been able to find the manuscript original. We've got a 20th century transcript that someone did. And it's a visitor recording, you know, in little short bursts, went to Monticello, we ate this for dinner, I spoke to this person. And then there was just casually inserted a line saying, all of Mr. Jefferson's house slaves are mulattoes, and mulattoes is underlined. And then the person moves on to the next topic, and you kind of think, gosh, I hadn't really noticed that before, the way in which, you know, there's... There's definitely some comment, but um, you know, f frequently I find, gosh, I wish people would say more in, in some of these accounts. credit than he deserved? You know, my impression, and I have to admit, um, you know, reading the man's letters every day, maybe didn't have the most positive opinion of him as a person, you know, I kind of, he kind of starts to feel cranky after a while, um, but I really, the more I read the visitor accounts, the more kind of convinced I am that Jefferson was really um, an introvert and very shy, and that he enjoyed speaking with people um, but he was most comfortable kind of one-on-one. -on -one. And, and of course, I think a lot of the accounts that I've looked at are him, you know, comfortably in his retirement. 
at Monticello where he's, you know, it's, it's his kingdom, right? So everybody that's coming to visit him, he's totally in his comfort zone. And, you know, while people will say, well, gosh, anybody can, can approach Mr. Jefferson, most of the people that are coming to visit him are already pretty friendly disposed towards him. They're not coming to, you know, shout obscenities at him or to question his politics. Um, they're coming because they want to pay homage. So I think there's a little bit of, of that in there that maybe he's not necessarily a totally different person, but he's on much more comfortable grounds and he's not having to speak to a large assembly or, or deal with, you know, huge groups of strangers at once, but kind of one-on-one -on -one with somebody that he, he already know has been vetted by friends of his. For the purposes of volumes, the accounts that are most likely to make it into our volumes are the ones that mention Jefferson in detail. Um, but we're we're gathering all of them, and you know Diane Aaron Price can tell you this because we talk about this a lot. You know, I'll say if Diane's working on mirrors, I look for ones that mention mirrors or things like that because I think one of the groups of people that a lot of these accounts are going to be most helpful for are our curators because they talk about what was in the house when, how it was displayed, um, you know, where things moved around and. You know, I, I admit, I spend a lot of time upstairs looking at my files. I'm not in the house that often, so it doesn't always occur to me, well, the bust has moved. You know, I have no idea where the bust of Voltaire normally is. So um, we, we're, we're gathering everything so that it'll eventually make it to the right hands. It's entirely possible, and it's entirely possible, and, and um, I know Jeff loves the story. The reverse is also true. We've got a letter, I think in volume one, where a visitor, we don't have an account for this man, we don't know much about him, but the day after he visits, he writes an apology letter to Jefferson. And it's very obvious from the tone of this letter that, you know, I don't usually drink, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, I wasn't used to the high quality of the spirits. So there's definitely, you know, it, it, it's a very comfortable surroundings, yeah. A little bit, you know, definitely um, somewhat as he gets older, the family will be turning people away because he's ill. There's one really great account actually in the family letters again where um, the granddaughters talk about, they don't know who the people are, they describe them as a rude party of North Carolinians, I think. And these North Carolinians, I don't know how they knew that's who they were because they didn't really speak to them, but these folks come up to the house and they're peering in the windows and knocking on the glass and trying to get in. So there definitely there were people that were politely asked to leave and not come back. Um, and Jefferson, you know, very frequently does, you know, escape down to Poplar Forest. And I think that the family will talk about how that's the one place that he can be where there aren't this continual strain of visitors that have to be met. So people do get, do get turned away. Yeah. And that's something that I, I find very interesting. I mean, I, th I find that account so fascinating, and I don't really, I don't 
not sure quite what to make. I think a lot of it is Fletcher. I think he's definitely, because of his politics, is prone to hear the worst about Jefferson. But one thing that's really struck me recently is that between the Jefferson papers and the visitor counts, there's a really big gulf where all the neighbors fall in. The neighbors aren't writing down, today I saw Mr. Jefferson and it was the most wonderful thing in my life and we had dinner and talked about this. They see him all the time, they interact with him, so they're not necessarily recording what for them are fairly mundane interactions. So it's really hard to get a sense of what are the neighbors saying about Jefferson. And you know that's one of the few accounts where they talk about well, what people in the neighborhood say. You get the sense from some of some of them that you know there's definitely there's always people that are willing to say bad things about their neighbors, whether their neighbors are Thomas Jefferson or not. So some of that does come through, but it's really hard to get a sense of who exactly those people are. Thank you very much.